Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 79 of the Julia LaRoche Show. We have a returning guest to the show. We are joined by Brent Johnson. He is the founder and CEO of Santiago Capital. He is also the investor behind the dollar milkshake theory, which is a framework he developed to help explain how a sovereign debt and currency crisis might play out. In this episode, we revisit the dollar milkshake theory. We also got Brent's macroeconomic outlook and why he expects the Federal Reserve's rate hikes will really start to pinch the economy in the second half of the year and why we will likely see downside in risk assets. We also got his outlook on the US dollar, especially amid all of these headlines around de-dollarization. We got his take there. We also got his take on gold. He has been a long-term believer of gold. And of course, much, much more. I really enjoyed having Brent back on the show. I always learn something from him and I think you will too. By the way, if you're new to the channel, welcome. So great to have you here. If you haven't done so already, please be sure to hit that like button and ring that notification bell so you won't miss any future episodes. And if you're listening to the podcast, if you feel so inclined, please leave a rating and a review so you can help more folks find these episodes. I really appreciate your support. I couldn't do this without you. And I hope you all enjoy this conversation with Brent Johnson. Brent Johnson, founder and CEO of Santiago Capital, a wealth management firm headquartered in in Puerto Rico, and also the host of the Milkshakes, Markets, and Madness show. It is great to welcome you back on the show. Really great to see you again, Brent. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to talking to you. Likewise. And I have to say, you were on uh, episode 22, and this is going to be episode 79, and you were a huge hit uh, with the viewers. So I'm excited to have you back on, especially with everything happening of late. And I think um, where I'd like to start is where I usually go with my guest, which is the big picture, the the macro view, more of your framework, how you're viewing the world today. Let's start there. Sure. Well, you know, I've, I've kind of had the same macro framework for probably three or four years now. And while it hasn't played out exactly the way I thought, it, 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 it hasn't been incorrect. And so it's helped me navigate um, the last four years. And it's helped me kind of understand why things happened the way they happened and, and where I think they're headed. Now, whether, whether they will end up the way I think they will or not, that time will tell. But, uh, but the framework has helped me over the last four years. And the framework is, has really been you know, what I've dubbed the dollar milkshake theory. And for, for anybody who's followed me is probably sick of hearing that 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 phrase, um, but it has really helped. And, and, and the, the for those who are not familiar with the theory, it's basically, I have said that I think that we are headed towards a sovereign debt and currency crisis. And when that happens, I think that the US economy and the US dollar will be seen as the safe haven. And even though it has, numerous problems on a relative basis to other places that people can put their money, I think they will choose to put it in the United States and in the United States dollar. And so we have not had the currency crisis yet, but you know, capital flows have continued to come into the United States. Um, our equity markets have dramatically outperformed all the other equity markets. Um, the US dollar has outperformed all of the currencies over that time period. And I also say I'm also a big long-term believer in gold. And over that same time period, gold has gone higher. And so, you know, when we got uh, last year, when the Fed started raising rates and the dollar got stronger, I wasn't surprised by that. It kind of helped me kind of navigate the storm a little bit. And I think I think we're going to have more of the same going forward. Um, you know, the Fed has now been raising rates for a year, a little over a year. I think as we get into the back half of the year, all those interest rate um, 
hikes are going to start to pinch the economy for lack of a better, that's probably a polite way of saying it. <laughs> and, and I don't think it's going to be like the first six months here, we, we've had a little bit of volatility in March when, when we had the banking issues. But since then, you know, volatility has remained very, relatively low. We haven't had a lot of excitement other than things just kind of grinding sideways and up a little bit. But I think when we get into the second half of the year, I think we're going to have some more excitement, probably some more downside and risk assets. And, you know, whether we hit the uh, recession wall or not, I don't know. I'll just have to wait and see. But I think the the odds are increasingly likely that that happens. Yeah, that's a great, um, like, just kind of framework and outline even for this conversation. I, I know, Brent, you probably are tired of explaining the dollar milkshake theory, but I w- I'll say, okay, some folks can go back and listen to episode 22 with you. But um, for folks who are maybe coming to this channel or to the show for the first time, can you explain it? And I know, yeah. I know you get the name from the movie "There Will Be Blood," and I love the way yeah. you explain it. I actually started watching the movie. I have not finished. <laughs> it's a long movie, uh, yeah. but I started watching it last night. So, if you could explain yeah. it, yeah. So the the reason I came up with the, what I think is kind of a simple analogy is I've always worked with individuals in in my career, and I've always tried to come up with kind of simple ways to explain fairly complex talk, uh, you know, uh, ideas or concepts, and. Um, you know, in this movie, There Will Be Blood, it's about a, this ruthless oil executive, and he's he's negotiating to buy a piece of land next to his, and the guy really wants to sell his land to the other guy, and he says, if you buy my land, then you can have all the oil underneath it, and this, you know, this ruthless oil executive says, I don't really need to buy your land. I can just stick a straw down on my side of the fence, and I can drink your oil. He says, I can drink your milkshake. And I thought that's a good analogy for the dollar milkshake theory because I think over the since since the global financial crisis, which is now 15 years ago, hard to believe, but since then the world, not just the United States, but the whole world, has done a number of different um, liquidity injections, bailouts, government stimulus, however you want to define these extraordinary monetary policies, and they they've added liquidity to the to the global economy. But I don't think, but in t- like in today's world with you know global capital markets, to me it's not as important who prints the money. It is it's who captures it. It's who gets to drink it. Right. So this whole world has been mixing this milkshake of liquidity. But I think for several reasons, the United States has the straw, or at least has the bigger straw than everywhere else. And so, you know, right now the U.S. has started tightening, or has been tightening monetary policy. Maybe it's possible that they're going to have to go back to easy monetary policy. And I think. I think they probably will. And I think much of the rest of the world will have to as well. And so when that happens, for many reasons, I think the U.S. has the straw and will be the, the main economy that sucks up that liquidity again. So, so that's kind of the thesis is that we're going to get into this global currency crisis and global debt crisis. The response from central banks and monetary authorities will be to print more money, to inject more money, to do more bailouts. And as a result, uh, I think whoever captures that liquidity is going to, on a relative basis, be better off. And I think that will be the U.S. Now, that's not to say that it's going to be great in the U.S. It doesn't mean that we don't have problems. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. I just think, again, if you had to choose where to go, I think that's where most global investors will choose to go. Yeah. And I think one of the keywords I'm hearing from you is um, relative, like on a relative basis. And this isn't necessarily like some great, amazing scenario that plays out, this would actually probably mean this would probably be a, it's a pretty dark scenario, if you will. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, the first time I ever 
And the, the, coming up with this, is, it's been a process. It's, it's kind of developed over time. But the first time I ever kind of started speaking about it was 2018. And in the very first interview I gave where I started to lay out how I thought what things would play out, one of the very first things I said is this is not a story that ends well. <laughs> and uh, and I think a lot of one of the reasons I think in the times that I have gotten pushback on the theory, I think one of the reasons is because people wrongly assume that I think that this is going to be a good thing for the U.S. And I don't necessarily think that's I, I think while we will have some benefits as a result of it, there's going to be negatives as well. And the idea that a global currency crisis is, quote unquote, good for anyone I think was a stretch. So again, it's you know uh, a, a relative win. It may be the best result. It doesn't mean you know. And and so the the theory will often get described as the cleanest dirty shirt, you know, analogy. Yeah. And they'll say, who would want to wear a dirty shirt? And and my answer to that is, well, nobody wants to. But if you had to choose, wouldn't you prefer the cleanest dirty shirt? I mean, would you rather have the dirtiest dirty shirt? And, you know, global investors, you know, the, 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 the investors that move big, big blocks of capital, they can't just go sit on the sideline and put it in cash. You know, you as an individual investor, we could just, you know, cash out, sit in cash. Maybe we buy a little gold and just wait for everything to blow over. Uh, but the big asset allocators, they can't do that. They have to put their money somewhere. So it, it, when, when you consider that, it does become a relative game. And they're going to put their money in uh, risk assets. It's just a matter of where they're going to put them. And that's why I think the U.S. will will get the lion's share of them. Yeah. You mentioned um, the first time you laid out this theory was in an interview in 2018. And uh, as you said, it's a story that doesn't end well. Has that's OK. That's five. It's been five years. Yeah. Um, has there been anything that's maybe changed your thesis or has the theory evolved a bit? I'm just curious. To yeah. How, yeah. How that well, framework's evolved. So I'd say that there's been a couple of things that have changed. And here's the other thing is like, I, I don't mind saying that things have changed because anybody who thinks that they're going to predict the future and get it hundred percent right is either just so arrogant that you don't want to deal with them or just a, you know, total psychopath. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, when, when 20, when we got into 2020, um, we, we thought we were really on the cusp of, of a crisis and then COVID hit. And we thought that COVID was probably going to be the catalyst to, to, to cause this currency crisis or to cause this sovereign debt crisis. And in hindsight, we got that wrong. And the reason we got it wrong was that because COVID was, for the most part, seen as kind of a globally systemic event or a global event, it wasn't just one part of the world that was going through it. The whole world sort of, maybe not 100%, but for the most part, cooperated. Um, there was a commonality in monetary policy. There was commonality in health, you know, national health policies. There was a commonality in social programs and so the world kind of worked together to, to get over it, right, or to get past it. And as a result, they were able to kick the can down the road um, on these problems. But since then, what has happened? Well, so, so that's why I think we got the timing a little bit wrong. Mm -hmm. But what has also happened since then is that subsequent to that, now the world is no longer cooperating. And in many ways, the world is fracturing. You know, we probably had two or three decades of globalization, and I think now we're probably the pendulum is swinging the other way. 
you know, the, 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 the conflicts between, you know, the East and West, China and the United States, China and Russia, Russia and Europe, however you want to define that. I think those are, those are higher now than they were a couple of years ago. And unfortunately, I think those are going to continue to, to bubble up and as opposed to get better. And so what has changed is I think, unfortunately, I hate saying this, but I think, you know, more military conflict is probably coming. Um, and so that that will that's obviously not good for anybody, right? And even though I think the U.S. has the biggest military and probably the best position to to fight a war, should it come to that, um, that's not nobody wins, right? It's just a matter of who loses the least. And so I, I think I think the fracturing of the global economy um, is what's changed a little bit. When I first started talking about it, I thought there would be a crisis, but I didn't necessarily think there would be military conflict as a result of it. Um, it looks like that's where it's headed to me. Again, I, I, this is the case I would absolutely love to be wrong. So I, I will happily, you know, five, 10 years from now, if we haven't had a big military conflict, I will happily raise my hand and say, I got that completely wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and so then, and, and then the, the pace with which rate hikes took place has been a little bit of a surprise to me. I thought that they would raise rates and I thought the U.S. would be able to raise rates more than the rest of the world. I did not expect Powell to raise, you know, five or six times in one year and to get to five and a half percent in in a little over a year. I mean, that's that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it is. You know, it's um interesting too, like like just listening to you, um, like when you, you have like a framework and, and a thesis and and like kind of like a narrative too, and 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 I, I like that you say, Hey, I'd be happy to be wrong here. It's just, I think it personally, I think it's just kind of fascinating to like hear like, okay, so there's a framework that you kind of look at the world. And of course, no one, no one knows like what's going to happen, but it probably is, I imagine really important to have some sort of guiding framework, especially as an investor. Yeah. And, you know, last year really kind of solidified our thesis for lack of a better way of saying it, you know, Coming uh, out of COVID, the U.S. was kind of the most aggressive on easy monetary policy. And so from, you know, the heights of COVID to summer of 2001, 2021, you know, the dollar pulled back from, you know, 102 to 90. And a lot of people were saying that the Fed would never stop printing. They'd never stop sending checks. You know, COVID would be here forever. They would always do stimulus and the dollar was headed to 80. We, we stood pretty firm and said, no, for a number of reasons, you know, the dollar is going to, 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 to go back higher. And not only did it go back higher, but over the subsequent, uh, you know, year and a half, it went from, you know, 90 back to 115, which was a 30 year high. Mm -hmm. And when a lot of people were struggling to understand how it was possible that the dollar was rallying, despite all of these problems that the U.S. has, um, it made a lot of sense to us. And, and, and it showed us that while we're definitely didn't have everything right. We weren't totally off base either. And that's why we think that, you know, the subsequent pullback in the dollar now over the last six to, I guess it's almost nine months now it's been pulling back and it's pulled back about 10%. Um, it's not surprising to us that it's pulled back, um, you know, because we've always said we can be wrong, uh, but we, we understand why it's pulled back. It's pulled back largely because the expectations for further rate hikes has fallen. And we think that was a big reason why they were rising to begin with. But, you know, we've never said it's only because of rate hikes. We think there's a number of reasons that could push the dollar higher. And so even though the dollar's pulled back, 
and we understand why it's pulled back, we we think the probably the biggest risk out there that is underappreciated is that the dollar could go back up again. And I think you know with the pullback that it's that it's had, I think there's a lot of people out there that are now expecting an imminent pivot by the Fed. You know they're going to go, they're going to stop raising, and they're probably going to then they're going to cut rates, and then they're going to go back to QE, and so therefore the dollar is going to go lower. And that I can't rule that out. That could happen, but what we would say is that that will happen to every other country as well. You know, ECB will have to do it, Bank of Japan will have to do it, China will have to do it, Australia will have to do it. And so on a relative basis, you know, we think the dollar will rise again, just like it did, you know, last year. And so, or or at least we think there's a the there's a higher risk of that happening than the market is pricing in. Yeah. And when the dollar goes higher, really bad things happen. That's why we had a lot of volatility last year. That's why markets were down so much last year. That's why, you know, the Bank of England, the Bank of Japan, um, the ECB, they all had to intervene in their sovereign credit markets last year. To kind of keep things going and that was because the dollar was getting stronger and so we, we just think that in this type of environment you can't ignore that you have as as somebody who manages money of other people and who's a fiduciary when i see a problem of that magnitude that could show up and impact people's portfolio i can't just ignore it i don't necessarily have to bet 100 percent on it but i can't ignore it yeah i can't ignore it as you point out um that's one of the biggest risks that you see is that the dollar could go higher and uh, you know you just kind of point out that's what impacted um markets because all, we right we saw all these central bank um actions last year can we explore that or flesh that out like um that risk in particular and maybe what do you think could push it um to go higher what are some of the catalysts yeah so Last year, what 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 we think caused it last year was the aggressive rate hikes by the Fed. So on an interest rate differential, you got paid more to put your money in dollars than to leave it in euros or yen or yuan or whatever it was. Um, we think it was probably done mostly for domestic inflationary reasons, but we also think that the Fed and the U.S. government, we think they know that there was knock-on effects of doing that, and that is that it would put extreme pressure on the rest of the world. Um, you know, it basically put recessionary pressures on Europe, um, same in Japan, um, same in China. And in many ways, we think they were doing that on purpose to kind of shore up their side of the geopolitical landscape, right? You know, you, if you put somebody under pressure, you can then get them to negotiate with you, perhaps negotiate more favorably for you. And then they could say, listen, we will help you out, but you're going to vote with us on this UN resolution or you're going to be on our side when it comes to this trade agreement. So we think that the U.S. knows how to use the dollar, quote unquote, as a weapon. Right. And so um, that's why we think it was done last year. Um, and as, as we go forward this year, while we don't necessarily think they're going to continue to raise rates at the same rate as last year, I do think that they will raise rate, rates in June. And I do think there is a higher likelihood that they continue to raise than than, than many people. Um, I also realize that once they hit the wall and credit stops getting extended, then we could have a, a credit crunch. So what I mean by that is, you know, for, for the economy to function, capital has to be circulating. Based on the design of the system, cap, capital has to circulate. If, if capital stops circulating, then interest doesn't get paid, debts don't get paid, and then we start to have these, you know, a debt crisis, which is what we have long foretold. If that starts to happen, if people stop spending money, if transactions stop happening because now rates have gotten too high, 
then we could have starting to having defaults. And once defaults happen, then you have supply of money starts to disappear. And when supply of money starts to disappear, then you start to have layoffs happening. And then when layoffs stop happening, then you have spending to start to fall. And so that could start the downturn. And typically in a downturn, there's a lack of supply of dollars. And then that pushes the price higher, not because things are great, but just because lack of supply, right? And so if the if the even if the Fed stops raising interest rates, or even if they start to cut rates, if 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 the supply contracts even faster than that, you can still get a price rising. And the issue is that it's not just the United States that owes dollars. The re- so the U.S. owes around 31, 32 trillion dollars. Well, the rest of the world also owes over $30 trillion and they owe it in dollars and it's not their home currency. So they have to go out on the market and buy dollars to then service their dollar debt. So if dollars start to disappear, basically when when we tighten monetary policy and dollars aren't as plentiful, it makes it harder for them to service that debt. Now, the fact that the dollar has come back down 10% has made it easier over the last six to nine months to service that debt. But if we get into a situation where the global economy starts to slow and transactions start to, to slow, and then you start to get some defaults and the supply of dollars starts to contract, then you get a situation where the demand is still there because debts still have to be paid, but the supply of dollars is just not there to, to, to meet all that demand. Then you get a rising dollar in that scenario. And then, so that's one reason. And then the other reason is, as I talked about, the um, you know the the increasing geopolitical um, concerns. You know, if if you know the war in Ukraine, unless uh, it, if it doesn't get better and it, and instead it gets worse, you know, I think increased military tensions, or or God forbid, something happens with the U.S. and China, whether it's over Taiwan or or some other issue, that's typically a time where you get a flight to quality. And, you know, because everybody needs dollars to operate, you can see the dollar rise higher on that scenario as well. So, again, whether these things come to pass or not, I don't know. I just think there's a higher likelihood of them happening than is currently priced in. And and it's something that I have uh, my eye on very closely. Yeah, certainly um, something that you have to pay attention to or, or think about especially like as someone who you man- you're managing um, money and client money and um, being a, a fiduciary. Um, okay. So I, I do want to ask you this because when I'm listening to you about like a fracturing global economy, it, it kind of brings up to this notion. And I'm sure you've seen, obviously you've seen all the headlines around this yeah. de-dollarization narrative. What do yeah. you, I would love to hear what you think of it. What do you make yeah. of all this? Well, I don't ignore it. I think a lot of times because people know that I'm very bullish long term on the dollar, they think that I don't see these things happening or I don't admit that they're happening. But I absolutely admit that they're happening. And part of the reason that they're happening is because of what happened last year. And what I mean by that is when the world needs dollars to operate and you get into a, a situation where the U.S. is the so the I need to take a step back and explain to people how dollars get created to begin with. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'll make this very simple, but there's the monetary base, which the U.S., only the U.S. government can create. And that's the reserves, that's dollar reserves and printed currency, you know, any physical currency or coins, and then reserves that are at the Fed. That's the monetary base. All of the money, all of the dollars in the world gets loaned into existence. Okay. So 
there's the US dollar market, but then there's the Euro dollar market. And Euro dollar market is the dollar market that exists outside the United States. The only way that money, I'm sorry, the only way that dollars gets created in the Euro dollar market is by the extension of credit. Somebody makes you a loan, all of a sudden you've got a million dollars in the bank. Um, or you know, they 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 extend credit to one of their vendors, and their vendor can then buy you know, or, or buy the inventory on that credit, but they're basically creating money out of thin air by making loans. If that stops happening, and, and that's what I mean, if money starts to get tight and, you know, that nobody wants to make any more loans, then the money, the, the supply starts to contract. And so when that happens, it becomes harder to pay your debts. And so when we, when we go back last year, a number of countries around the world could not meet their dollar obligations. And it was all, whether it was Ghana, whether it was Bolivia, whether it was Turkey, um, even Europe and Japan and other places, you know, they were very under pressure because we had a combination of commodity prices rising because of the supply issues. And then not only that, but commodities trade on the global stage in dollars. And the dollar was rising versus another country. So as an example, if you live in Turkey and in Turkey, inflation was 80%. And then let's say, I don't know, let's say you manufacture shoes. You're, you live in Turkey and you have a shoe manufacturing business and you had a million dollar loan in dollars that you used to build your factory. Well, now, and you have to buy the inputs for your shoes, those prices are up and those are priced in dollars. So they're up 10% or 20% because the prices are up, but then also your currency is down 10% versus the dollar. So instead of being, the prices being up 10%, they're actually up 20% in your local currency terms. So that's why the dollar going higher is so hard for the rest of the world, because it's not only that prices are going higher in your local currency, but you have to go get the dollars to then service the dollar debt and to buy dollar-based commodities. And so it's it's kind of a and and that's that's why having the global reserve currency is such a big weapon for the United States because the the U then that's why I said earlier when they raise rates they can put the rest of the world under pressure that is why when they raise rates they make the dollar stronger versus these other currencies and it makes them harder to 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 service their debts and to operate in dollars and so that's what was going on last year and so that that's why. That, that, that's why it's so important to understand um, the dollar, because the dollar influences every part of just about every economy around the world. You just really can't get away from it. And so this coming back to your question, you know, why is all this de-dollarization taking place is because the other countries, they recognize this. They recognize that they're kind of slaves to the dollar system and that the U.S. can put immense pressure on them. So they're trying to figure out how do we come up with a system that doesn't use dollars? And what I would say is I totally get that they're trying to do it. I completely understand why they're trying to do it, but it's just really, really hard to do it. It's not that I don't see the effort and it's not that I don't understand the desire. It's that I, I think better than most people understand how hard it is to actually do it. Um, I, I've jokingly used the analogy that you know, I've had a plan to join the PGA Tour for 20 years, but it's really hard to do. You can't just say you're going to do it. You actually have to go do it. And there's pain involved in doing it. For, for any country to de-dollarize, um, it, it would put their economy in immense pain. So they're in pain if they stay and they're in pain if they lose. Um, 
but the, the short-term pain of them leaving is even more than the short-term pain of them staying. And so for them to actually be able to completely de-dollarize and not go into crisis doing it is incredibly difficult. And so that's why I've said is even if de-dollarization does happen, and even if it continues to happen and there actually is some implementation of de-dollarization rather than just a headline, um, the process of de-dollarization is very painful. And in that painful period, I think the dollar actually goes higher rather than lower, uh, which is, kind, you know, if you can get through and get to the other side, then that would be very hard, bad for the dollar. But in the short term, going through it, I think is actually good for the dollar because the process of de-dollarization is kind of a chaotic and volatile process. And typically, if you look back over the last 25 or 30 years, whenever there's economic turmoil or volatility, the dollar rises. So it, it, it's kind of a, it's it's really a, I don't, I don't know the right word to use it, but it's it's one of those traps that the more you fight, the tighter the trap gets. And so it's really, really hard to escape the trap. Yeah. Um, and just for folks who are watching and listening, you you mentioned the Euro dollar system um, on episode 67. You can listen to that conversation with Jeff Snyder and we did a deep dive there. Still very much a black hole to me. I'm trying to wrap my mind around it, but um, I think you did a really nice job of framing it up. Let me ask you a quick follow on because it's more of a curiosity. I was taking a bunch of notes. Um, you're talking about like how dollar is a global reserve currency. It's been kind of weaponized. Um, raising rates can put the rest of that world, rest of the world, under pressure, making it harder to service their debt and operate in dollars. So, could it also like backfire um, on the U.S.? Like, imagine there's a lot like many folks or many other places might not appreciate all the rate hikes yeah. and whatnot. That's, there's a risk you have to kind of like walk a fine line, I suppose. Yeah. So the, the short answer is yes. There absolutely can be a, a, a blowback. Um, so I, I can tell you. So last last September, at the end of September of last year, the dollar was at a 30 year high. Um, the VIX was at a two year high. Equities were at a two year low. You know, this was when the Bank of England was intervening in their market. The Bank of Japan was intervening in their market. China had been, you know, make, doing measures to kind of help their real estate market. So the world was under a lot of pressure as the dollar was high last September. And in early October, so like a week or so later, I was in um, D.C. meeting with some people who were kind of in position to know um, kind of what was going on behind the scenes. And th th they made it very clear to me that policymakers in the United States were getting calls from their colleagues around the world saying, what in the hell is going on? You guys are killing us. You have to take your foot off the brake. The strong dollar is going to cause a huge crisis. And they were getting these calls, not just from the, our enemies, but our allies as well. Um, so it wasn't just, you know, so the, the point was the whole world was under pressure. It wasn't just Russia or China. And so when you get put in a position like that, you have to kind of come up with countermeasures, right? And I think that's largely what we've seen this year. We, we see the rest of the world trying to come up with countermeasures. And so that's why I, I think you've seen all these you know, de-dollarization headlines. Um, and I think at some point down the road, they will be successful. And a lot of it is because they, they, they've seen what can happen if they don't do anything. 
you know, if they're trying to protect their citizens and their countries and their economies, they can't just play along. They have to try to come up with some alternative way to uh, operate in the world. And so I, I understand why they're doing it. Um, but what I would say is it's just, again, I bring it back to it's it's much easier to say than to do. And that's why I, I feel like a lot of times when I talk to people who disagree with me, they are speaking from a point of what people would want rather than what they can actually do. Of course, they want to de-dollarize. Of course, they want to get out from underneath the, the, the thumb of the United States. But wanting to do something and having the ability to do something are two completely diff different things. And I just think the road to getting out from underneath it is much, much harder um, than, than many of the proponents of the, the de-dollarization process. Um, and, and that's that's and I and I think it's, you know, a lot of times you will see these headlines that we're going to de-dollarize and we don't understand why we should be using the dollar. But then, you know, Ghana is a very good example. So Ghana is a country in Africa who was, you know, they, they had an extreme dollar shortage. Uh, they were having trouble buying. They were having trouble getting dollars to then buy energy, whether it's oil or natural gas or diesel or whatever it was, to, you know, to, because you need energy to run your country. No matter, you know, every place in the world needs energy. And, they, and because energy trades in dollars, they needed dollars to get energy. And so they, over the summer, or not over the summer, a couple months ago, you know, they have a they have a gold industry, and they said we are going to use the gold from our gold mines to buy oil. And the idea was they would not need dollars anymore; they could buy the oil with with gold. And since they wouldn't have to use gold to buy energy, then that would, or since they wouldn't have to use their dollars to buy energy, then that would free up some dollars and allow them to use those dollars elsewhere. That lasted about a month and a half or two months, and then they just agreed to get another bailout from the IMF in dollars. So again, they tried, they came up with a plan, and they tried, but it ultimately failed. And now they're back to having even more dollar debt than they did before, and they're still using dollars. And so they, even though they tried to de-dollarize, it wasn't successful. Um, another example is back in 2019, there was a big headline that Iraq and China were no longer going to, Iraq was no longer going to sell oil to China in dollars. They had agreed to a, a, a thing where it was going to be an in-kind um, deal where Iraq would provide oil to China. China would then provide services, you know, infrastructure building, you know, kind of helping them grow their economy uh, in exchange for the oil. And everybody said, oh, see, here's another example of de-dollarization. The dollar is no longer being used in energy markets. And you know, China's the biggest buyer in the world. Well, and, and it, it was hailed as this great revolutionary thing. Well, the reality is, is that deal only covered about 10% of Iraq's oil exports to China. So it was a very small piece. And then it was never actually implemented. It never actually happened. So, you know, again, the difference between the headline and reality was massive. And I think that's a lot what we're going to that's why I still think over the next couple of years, the dollar is going to go a lot higher because, you know, the headlines, in my opinion, just don't match reality. And an another analogy I, I would use is, you know, let's talk about the green energy initiatives. You know, I think everybody knows that there's been a big push around the world to 
you know, go green in order to fight climate change and governments around the world have instituted mandates and policies and, you know, offered uh, stimulus to certain companies that would try to get away from carbon-based energy and go to green-based energy. And, and that's great, except, and, and Europe was kind of leading that charge. And, you know, that's great, and it, but it takes a while to go from a carbon-based energy to a green-based energy. And what happened last year was that we had a, a crisis where traditional energy spiked before the green initiatives were ready to go. And so Europe was put in a big squeeze last year as their natural gas and oil prices went through the roof because the whole continent still needed traditional energy to run. Even though they wanted to go to green, they were still using traditional. And it's the same thing, in my opinion, with de-dollarization. They want to go to a non-dollar-based trade, and they're and they're they're putting initiatives together to do that, and they're building systems to allow them to do that. But in my opinion, there's going to be a crisis before those are fully implemented. And just like traditional energy prices spiked, I think the dollar will spike. And so, you know, it, it it's a very important to understand that the world wants to de-dollarize, and it's important to understand that they're making efforts to do it. Um, but just I, I always recommend to people don't confuse desire with ability because they're they're two dramatically different things. That's that's a good like mental model. Don't confuse desire with ability. And um, interesting analogy too to energy and um, the need for fossil fuels to get to a green future. Um, I want to bring up another topic with you. And gosh, we are recording here. It's Thursday, May 25th. It's 1.35 p.m. Eastern for the folks watching <laughs> and listening. Um, although I don't know when it will get edited and distributed, but uh, the the debt ceiling negotiations. Yeah. Anything can happen, I guess, uh, before this episode even goes live. Right. So I don't know how to like frame this up, but maybe we'll just do a more open-ended, like, how are you thinking about it? Maybe short-term, long-term. Um, what are your general thoughts? So I think about it in two different ways. I think about it in short-term and long-term. And, and I think it's really, really important for retail investors who perhaps don't do this every day to, to understand this. Um, and that is that, first of all, the debt ceiling will get raised. And the reason it will get raised is both sides want to spend money, right? I'm not going to get into the Democrats versus the Republicans too much other than to say, you know, there's obviously differences, but where they have a great similarity is they both want to spend money. So the idea that they're not going to raise the debt ceiling so that and and not be able to spend money and not pay their own salaries, it, to me, is a, a little silly. It, it will get raised. The question to me is how much um, chaos goes on between now and then. I think that Janet Yellen had said that, you know, by June 1st, we're going to run out of money. Uh, I, over the last kind of 12, 24 to 48 hours, I think that date's been pushed back a little bit to maybe to mid-June. Um, but I think both sides will, again, headline versus reality. They will, the Republicans will come out and say the Democrats would rather have a government shutdown than do the right thing. And the Democrats would come out and say, Oh, the Democrat, the Republicans are being unreasonable. They want to cut funding for Social Security. And, you know, so that they want to score their political points um, with their base prior to raising the debt ceiling. But I think ultimately it will get raised. Now, here's but here's where it gets more interesting for me is in the short term. Now, let's talk. We'll talk very short term, short term and then longer term. Very short term. If they were to come out today and say there's a dollar uh, or the, we're raising the debt ceiling, there's a solution. I think markets would probably rally initially on that euphoria and dollar would probably pull back a little bit on that. But 
if we fast forward a week or two weeks, what would happen, I think, is that if they raise the debt ceiling, I think if they raise the debt ceiling, it means that the treasury can now go out and issue more debt, right? And in the long term, that's bad for the dollar, right? If you if you take on a bunch of debt that you can never pay off and you have to print a bunch of money to pay off that debt, then that's going to be bad for the currency. So for those who think raising the debt ceiling is bad for the dollar, in the long term, I agree. But in the short to medium term, what that means is that now the Treasury can go out and issue more debt. But when they do that, they're exchanging their debt for dollars. So they are going back into the market and they are draining dollars from the market and putting it in their checking account. So if, if you've read anything about the, the debt ceiling and you, you've heard the word TGA or the, or the, the three-letter acronym TGA, it, it stands for the Treasury General Account. So just like you and I have a checking account at, at a bank, they have the, the government has an account at the Federal Reserve, and it's called the TGA. So if they go out and they sell bonds, then people give them dollars in exchange, and they put those dollars in the TGA. So that TGA is getting, getting lower and lower and lower. Their government's running out of money. When they raise that debt ceiling, they are going to want to replenish that TGA account. So whereas over the last six to nine months, it's gone from like $600 billion down to $60 billion, that money's gone into the economy. Now they're going to want to build it back up to $600 billion. So they're going to take that money out of the economy and put it back into their account. So that would be a drain on liquidity, which in my opinion would not be favorable for risk assets or for uh, for the stock market or for the economy in general, because they're, in, all things being equal, less liquidity means more risk, more liquidity means less risk. So that's why I say it'd be kind of interesting that if they raise the debt ceiling, it could actually be a net negative for the stock market, even though that debt ceiling risk has been taken off the table. So my point is that over the summer, I think whether they raise the debt ceiling or whether they don't raise the debt ceiling, it's a net negative for liquidity. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to have a big crash. It just means that all things being equal, you know, less liquidity is, is, is bad than, than, than it is good. And so I think over the summer, I think we could have some volatility over the summer, regardless of whether they raise the debt ceiling or not. Yeah. The liquidity part, that's, that's an interesting part to bring up that, um, you know, no matter what they do, that's, it's the, the scenario is less, less liquidity, um, as you put it. Um, let me just ask another question because, okay, I, I feel like this keeps coming up year oh, like over the years has come up. Is this just going to be like a natural thing? Like this is just going to always happen. We'll always have these kind of like showdowns every, I don't know, every so often there'll be some sort of showdown and okay, raise the ceiling, raise the ceiling. Is there ever going to be like a day of reckoning where it's like, well, I think, I think there will be, I, th I think there eventually will be. I happen to think that it will be after every other country has their day of reckoning. Mm. So, and, and that's it kind of goes back to the whole milkshake theory and the cleanest dirty shirt. I fully recognize and acknowledge the incredible problems that the U S has gotten itself into, you know, by, by the amount of money that they've spent and the, the fiscal policies that they've implemented, but because the system runs on dollars and because the whole world runs on dollars, it almost necessitates that everybody else goes into crisis first. Now, Nothing is guaranteed. Nothing is for sure. But just all my analysis tells me that that would that there will be a progression where other countries will go into crisis before the U.S. And again, we saw that last year. We saw Europe was in crisis. We saw Japan was in crisis. England was in crisis. Uh, China was struggling with their real estate market. 
Um, and so I think that started to play out last year. And I think in the future, you'll see that play out again. Um, but I do think that, unfortunately, we probably will have these every, you know, every couple of years, these debt ceiling showdowns. And, you know, like it or not, I think that's the way politicians kind of score their political points and raise political capital. And they get to, you know, stand up on the floor of the U.S. Senator and shake their fist and say these darn Democrats and these darn Republicans and um, you know, but ultimately they will get raised because they 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 both want to be able to to spend money. Mm-hmm. Let me also bring up with you because um, I was just listening uh, in the conversation again, taking it. Since always great to have you because like I get my notes just fill up because you have a lot of great knowledge. Um, I heard you say that you expect um, a rate hike in June, and I think I did hear you on your own um, show say that, and I think a lot like many folks now expect that. Um, we'd love to just kind of hear your thoughts. Like what, why are we, why is the fed, why, why do they keep hiking at this point? Especially, yeah. um, in light of like the regional banks, the, the sure. crisis there, just a curiosity. Sure. I, well, I wish I didn't have to say this, but I think a lot of it just has to do with Powell's personal legacy. And you, you've probably heard other people bring this up, but what, what I mean when I say that is that, so central bankers are nothing if not arrogant. In my opinion, they're, you know, they they think they're the masters of the universe and they don't like to get things wrong. Unfortunately, you know, coming out of COVID, they printed a lot of money, uh, for lack of a better way of saying it. Um, and they said inflation would be transitory and it turned out not to be. And it turned out to be much bigger than they thought it would be. And, you know, as a result, the, the, the Fed lost a lot of credibility. A lot of political credibility and a lot of personal credibility. The the individuals themselves, Powell, um, you know, Brainerd, some of these other the the Kachkari, the you know, their their personal reputations took a hit as a, as a result of that. And you know, I don't think Powell wants to go down as being a bad central banker. And if he raises rates now, he can say, you know, and and by raising rates, if the stock market comes under pressure it doesn't hurt the everyday guy on the street so much. And he's getting more, he's getting paid more on his savings account as, at, his, at his bank or in his treasury bills. Um, so from that perspective, the political points kind of go in Powell's favor. Um, the next thing is if, if for whatever, if he were to pivot or if he were to pause or if he were to, God forbid, cut rates, and then for whatever reason, inflation doesn't keep coming down and it starts to go higher again, then he's going to look really, really stupid. He's going to look like not only did he get the the um, you know the 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 call on inflation wrong to begin with, but now he cut too soon and inflation is going to take off again, and now he's going to be double behind the curve. And I don't think he's willing to let that happen and have him go down being a laughing stock. So if he continues to raise rates and the economy slows, which it is, you can see in the numbers that the economy slowing, and he probably should just stop at this point. But I don't think he will because if he keeps raising. And then something breaks, or if we get a big downturn, then everybody will be begging him to pivot. And then he can pivot with no risk. Mm. So I guess my point is, if he pivots now, even though, you know, you might think the risk is small, there is risk there. And if he pivots too soon and inflation doesn't fall, then he's kind of sealed as an Arthur Burns. And Arthur Burns was the central banker back during the 70s, during the high inflations. And he's often, you know, whether it's Correct or not, he's often referred to as an ineffective central banker. Yeah. And then Volcker came in after him and, you know, got inflation under control. And he's often seen as a hero. 
And so I think that Powell would much rather be viewed as a Volcker than be viewed as a, as a Burns. And so I think he'll continue to raise rates. And, but, and, and if he does continue to raise rates, and this, this is my thing with, with, with central bankers is, you know, Jeff Steiner and I, we agree on many, many things. The one thing we disagree on is he thinks that they're just totally clueless and stupid. And I think that they're extremely smart, but they're overly arrogant. And so it's my opinion, they think that if they raise and break something, that they can, that they're smart enough to institute some new policy and save the system. They think that they actually think that they can manage this, you know, this race car driving around the cliff. And I don't share that belief, but I think that they think that. And so I think that he's willing to keep raising rates. And then when he has to turn, he'll turn. And he thinks that he can save the system when that happens. And a pivot would be cutting, not just pausing. It would be a cut. And now it's like if they if something really breaks, we enter recession. Yeah. yeah. And and maybe they even have to go back to QE. Maybe things really break and the market's down 15% in two days. And you know, they go just like maybe it's like a March 2020 type event where, you know, because you remember in in um uh in the early parts of late parts of 2019, 2020, they were talking about raising rates. And then all of a sudden they had to do an intra-meeting cut. And then they had to go back to QE like a week later, like massive QE. So, you know, if something like that were to happen again, he will cut. Because and this is the other thing with central bankers, you I will often hear times people say, well, they they shouldn't interfere. They shouldn't bail people out. Well, I get that maybe they shouldn't in a free market, but we don't live in a free market. And the whole reason that central banks were created in the first place were to interfere. When things get mad and bad enough, their job is to come in and bail the system out. So to think that they won't pivot and won't bail things out when things get bad enough, I think is wrong. Now, having said that, I think that Powell is willing to let there be more pain before he bails it out than most people do. I, I think he's willing. I don't, I don't think it matters to him if the S&P goes down 15, 20 percent. I, I think he'd be OK with that. Well, he doesn't want the system to collapse. But I think he would be okay with the stock market coming down, having a slight recession. You know, he doesn't want a massive recession. He doesn't want the Great Depression. But if we had a, you know, if we had stock prices down 10 or 15, 20% and a small recession, and as a result, we got inflation back down to 3%, I think he would love that. How about um, like the, how about U.S. banks, uh, regional banks? Um, are they like symptomatic of this? Like what? What do you, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, so I think I think the I think the small regional banks are in a lot of trouble, um, and I think that there's going to be massive consolidation in that uh, that that uh, segment of the market. Um, I don't necessarily think that the central banks are trying to make them go out of business, but I think they're okay. I think they're okay knowing that that's a side effect. And so what I mean by that is, you know. As a result of them raising rates, a lot of these banks have been put under pressure because they bought bonds when rates were low. Now rates are higher. The bonds aren't worth as much. And if people start to pull their money out of the bank, they have to sell these bonds at now lower prices and you know they, they get this classic bank run. The way that they're going to pay for some of these bailouts is they're going to raise FDIC fees. So, And not only that, but with all the increased regulation, for small regional banks, the, the 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 cost of the regulatory and these FDIC fees is a much bigger piece, and it's much harder for these small regional banks to pay than it is for the big Chase Manhattan or Wells Fargo or Bank of America or whoever it is. 
And so I think we're going to see as a result of this, I think we're going to see more bank failures. I think we're going to see more consolidations. We're going to see more um, FDIC bailouts. And, you know, 20 years ago, I think there was 14,000 banks in the United States, and now it's down to 4,000. So I think that that trend will continue. Uh, you know, I think in another you know, five years, was probably down from 4,000 to 2,000 or something like that. So I, I fully expect that, that trend to continue. I would be very careful if I had my money in a small regional bank. And then the sad thing is the small regional banks are really important. And they, the small and regional banks, they do the majority of the lending to small and medium-sized businesses. And small and medium-sized businesses are the heartbeat of the economy. And so, you know, the last thing you want is if you're opening a small store in, you know, North Platte, Nebraska, you don't want to have to call your banker in Chicago or New York, you know, to get that loan because he doesn't know where you live. He doesn't know you, he doesn't understand the local market. And so it just becomes much less efficient. Um, and so I don't think this is a good thing, but I think, again, I think this is reality and I think, I think it's where it's headed. Yeah. Um, and when I was listening to you at the beginning of the conversation, when laying out your framework, you were talking about like these rate hikes that you think they'll eventually, as you put it, pinch the economy, a polite way of putting it. Um, and so right now we've been grinding sideways, but expect more excitement in the second half of the year and maybe some downside in risk assets. But I also heard you say that you are a long-term believer in gold. Can you share your views on gold and the context in which you like to hold gold within your portfolio? Sure. So we own physical gold uh, in our portfolio. I think everybody should have um, gold. Um, part of the reason you own gold is that if you just look at history over time, fiat currency loses value. They make more of it. You know, as they make more of it, it loses purchasing power and you can't make more gold. So gold tends to, to hold uh, its purchasing power better than fiat currency. Um, gold has been used as some form of money or a monetary uh, instrument for thousands of years. It just has a great history of holding value and being accepted all over the world. And that's part of the reason the central banks own it. You know, if you think about it, all the, the biggest holders of gold in the world are central banks. There's a reason, right? And so I think if, if, if central banks are owning gold for some reason, then it, it's not a horrible idea for you as an individual to own gold. Um, but I, I, I don't own gold in order to get rich. I own gold to kind of protect, you know, as more as an insurance policy long term. Um, and even though I think gold is going to go much higher in the years ahead, I don't think it's necessarily going to go to $5,000 overnight. Um, oftentimes when you talk to somebody um, you know, in the gold world, they will say, you know, you got to own gold because they're going to print a bunch of dollars. The dollar is going to go into hyperinflation. All of your money is going to become worthless and dollars going to go or gold is going to go to $20,000. Well, I don't think we're going to have hyperinflation of the dollar. Um, I, I think there's way too much demand for the dollar uh, for that to happen anytime soon. Uh, but, you know, part of the reason you own gold is you just never know. And the other thing is that it's, uh, it's kind of it. Because I think we're going to get into this global sovereign debt crisis and the monetary system itself will come under question, I think gold will put itself forward as a possible solution. Now, I don't think we're going to go back to a gold standard, but if you see gold going from you know 2000 to 2500 to 3000 while traditional money and sovereign bonds are under pressure, people are going to start looking at it a little differently and you know it, it will become a, an option. And so that's part of the reason why I own gold. Yeah. As you put it, like insurance, how about cash? How do you think about like how much cash you want to have? Um, I yeah. guess to give you some optionality. I think everybody should have cash. You know, exactly how you own that cash and where you own it. You know, I think it's kind of depends on your personal circumstances, but for years and years, 
basically for most of them, well, not my whole career, but from let's call it 2008 until 2019, every time I went to a conference, every time I you know listened to a presentation, one of the one of the things that got brought up was that you know rates are so low. There's no yield. You don't get you don't get paid anything for being um, you know in cash. And you got to go way out on the the risk return scale in order to get any kind of yield. You know, you had to go 20 years out on a bond in order to get two or three percent or something. Well, now that's no longer the case. You know, you can sit in a T bill and get five percent, which is amazing. You know, and you know, banks haven't raised rates that much, but you can get more on your bank deposit now than you could a couple of years ago. And so, what that does is it gives you option. It gives you a way to to sit in something very safe. And have the optionality to use that in some kind of a, I don't know, a, either a big sell-off or some kind of an event. And not only that, but what what having cash will allow you to do is it will allow you to sleep at night a little bit better. And if we do get into a crisis, it will because you have cash already and you don't need to sell something that's now under pressure. You will be able to make a decision better. You won't be as stressed when making decisions. And that decision you make when you're not stressed may make you a lot more money than if you were sitting in something other than cash right now. And so I, I think it makes sense for everybody to have cash in their portfolio. Again, what percent, you know, I, it, it depends on personal circumstance, but you know, having a 10% cash position seems extremely prudent to me. Yeah. Well, I want to end on more of a, a lighthearted question and I'm, okay. I'm looking at you and yeah. you have a map of the Camino de Santiago behind yeah. you. Santiago Capital, of course, named after yeah. the Camino, which I know you've been on. My yeah. mom has walked it several times. My dad's walked it a handful of times. My brother did it. And, okay. you know, we're getting into summer. We're going to go into Memorial yeah. Day weekend. And I would love to just hear about that experience, um, how it impacted you, because you you named your firm after it. Um, yeah. And if you want to like share with folks the sure. the benefits of walking the Camino, you know, it was uh, is one of the greatest experiences of my life. It was uh, I was between jobs. Uh, I figured that was uh, probably one of the few times in my life where I would have the time to do something like that. So, for those who don't know, the Camino de Santiago is an ancient pilgrimage route that goes all over Europe. Uh, the heart of it is in Spain and in Western Spain and an area called Galicia is where St. James was buried. So Santiago is St. James in Spanish. And when they found his tomb, you know, they declared it a holy site. This is, you know, a thousand years ago. And, you know, pilgrims started going to, to this site. And so but people still do it today. And so all along the way, you know, you walk through wheat fields and along highways and through little towns and you can you stop and you stay in these little places called uh, pensiones. Um, you know, it's basically a bed. You know, maybe a mat on the floor. Maybe maybe they have a shower. Maybe they don't. Um, but it's it's. I would say it's beautiful in its simplicity because all you do is you get up and walk, and you just walk from one little town to the next town. And I did 520 miles. I started just over the border of Spain and France in a place called Saint Jean Pied de Port, and uh, so I walked over the Pyrenees which was pretty difficult for the first couple of days. And then you head west and you just keep walking. And it is, it's interesting because you meet all different kinds of people along the way. There's a lot of people do it. Uh, it's, it it's become a very big event. But what, you know, what, what I found amazing about it was um, not just the different people you met, but you had a lot of time just to sit there and think. Um, you know, there would be mornings where you would wake up and your feet, when you go to bed at night, you can feel your heartbeat in your toes because your feet are just killing you. Um, you know, you become an expert on fixing blisters very quickly. 
but every little town you go through, you know, somebody will wave at you or they'll offer you a bottle of water. And um, it was just, it was a it was a great experience. And, you know, there's a, something to be said for the simplicity of it, because, you know, some, like I said, some mornings you wake up, you don't want to walk, but you just start walking. And within an hour, you know, you you kind of find it a little better. And by the end of the day, you're glad you did it. And, um, it, you know, when when you walk into um, um, Compostela, so Santiago de Compostela is the is the is the final stop. Um, there's a big church, a big cathedral. And when you, I mean, it's very emotional, right? It's because, uh, you know, a lot of people do it for different reasons. You know, some people do it for religious reasons. Some people do it for athletic reasons. Some people do it for not necessarily religious, but spiritual reasons. I actually just got a book. My wife got this book for me. I just, right here, it's oh, wow. <laughs> and Andrew McCarthy wrote, walked it with his son and he wrote a book about it. Andrew McCarthy was an actor back in the eighties. And uh, my son, my son's 14, and we've kind of talked about doing it at some point. So anybody who's interested in doing it, I, I can't recommend it enough. It was a, it was a fascinating experience. Um, very, uh, uh, I, don't even, I don't know the right way to say it. I can't really describe it other than say it was amazing. Yeah, transformative, I suppose. Transformative. Well. I think that's a good, that's a good, you know, and I, I did it before I started my career on Wall Street. So maybe when I'm done with my career, I'll walk it again. It'll be the bookends. I love that. And do that with your son. That would be so amazing. Well, Brent, I have to say, I love having you on the show. I I, I can't even tell you how many notes I took. Wait, a lot. Um, and I always <laughs> learn from you. And I know you help our viewers and listeners learn and, and get better and think about new things. So I just want to give you a quick moment. If you want to share where folks can find you on social media or follow you, um, if there's anything you want to plug or any parting thoughts that you'd like to share, please take a moment to do so. Sure. So my job, my regular day job is I manage money for very high net worth individuals. Uh, I have a website that just has my contact information, which is SantiagoCapital.com. If anybody's interested in you know how we go about that, I'm happy to talk to them. Um, we have, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Um, Santiago AU Fund is my handle, but if you just search Santiago Capital, there's a seashell on there. Uh, that's my handle. I'm, I'm pretty active on there. I do a number of these podcasts. We have our own show, which we call Milkshakes, Markets, and Madness. If you go to milkshakespod.com, you can get some more information there. And uh, I'm always happy to come back and talk to you. I enjoy talking to you. And uh, to the extent people find it helpful, I'm happy. This is part of, part of the reason I do it is to kind of help give back and help people who maybe don't have uh, um, you know, the ability to kind of figure this stuff out on their own. I love that. You are always welcome on this show. Brent Johnson, thank you so much for being so generous with your time, your ideas, and your knowledge. Really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Hey, everyone. I really hope you enjoyed that video. Be sure to hit that like button, the subscribe, and that bell so you won't miss any new videos.